Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we look at the role of education under capitalism. This is a speech delivered by socialist and teacher activist Manolia Mustafa at the annual Marxism conference held in Melbourne every year, organised by the Socialist Alternative. So specifically today, I'm going to be looking at um, working class schooling. The conventional idea is that education is a social leveller in our society. So this is a quote from Horace Mann, one of the educational reformers in the United States in the 1800s. And he says, education then beyond all other devices of human origin is the great equaliser of the conditions of men, the balance wheel of social machinery. So I think this idea still exists today, if not um, at least as a hope, if not an expectation. But the fact is that the largest determining factor of economic success is not education, but parental income. And you don't need to take my word for it, the OECD actually states this fact. So how does this idea then gain um, any resonance at all? Because there is actually um, a grain of truth to the idea that education can increase an individual's um, economic advantage. Of the people born in the poorest quintile, so um, that's the poorest 20%, 6% of those make it to the richest quintile, so the richest 20%. And education is the most common means by which these people rise up the social ladder. And I've got a um, graph here and it shows you that, so there's five quintiles because five twenties make a hundred. And <coughs> I do teach maths sometimes. <laughs> um, so that's the bottom quintile, the poorest 20%, all the way up to the richest. And that's the birth, what um, economic status people are born into. And on this axis, you've got um, what they become as an adult. <coughs> so as you can see, 43% of those born in the bottom quintile stay there. Um, and in my talk, I've got uh, 6% as a figure, that's from the OECD, but this graph shows that it's about 4% that get up to the highest quintile. And those born at the top of society, 40% of them stay there. And it just shows you um, the movement between um, social, um, socioeconomic class. Um, so, but this movement, um, the movement between social classes that education offers, is um, happens less um, nowadays than, say, the 70s because um, clearly the relative advantage enjoyed by those with um, a tertiary degree has fallen over time with that being much more commonplace accessibility to tertiary education. And there's a nice analogy that um, education theorist John Marsh uses. He says, if one person stands up in a crowded movie theatre, they'll be able to see the screen better, but if everybody stands up, we'd be back to where we started and only the taller people would have an advantage. So um, as more and more people are getting more and more skilled and more and more educated, um, the entry requirements for certain jobs, they're getting more and more to keep up with that, to keep people out and sort them into who can get into what um, job. But the social mobility that um, education promises is also quite limited. Um, it's only limited to a rearranging of the relative um, advantage that is available to the working class. So clearly the Gina Reinhardt's of the world, they don't reach their filthy rich status by studying, you know, having billionaire parents 101. So, um, you know, your education is not a ticket into the 1%, the most rich. And while educational qualifications may be the best insurance against unemployment, this is only the case if the economy actually has jobs to offer. So in 2011, 
There was an exception to this out of the EU member states. Does anyone want to guess what that exception was? Come on. Greece, obviously, devastated by the GFC. They found there that um, being more educated didn't mean that you were more likely to get a job. In fact, in Greece, the youth unemployment rate is 55%, so half the college graduates um, who are looking for jobs aren't able to find one. And the United States, similarly, um, the rate of unemployment in college graduates there is 53%. And so I think here the take-home message is that um, un, you know, in a time of economic crisis, capitalism doesn't really care how educated you are. So I've tried to uh, debunk the myth that the role of education is to provide um, an equal chance to achieve economic success and stability. But um, now I'm going to look at the work of um, two Marxist economists, uh, Samuel Bowles and Herbert Gintis, to try and explain what the real role of education under capitalism is for working class youth. Bowles and Gintis were among the first to present a systematic analysis of education under capitalism, which challenged the dominant ideology that education is an avenue out of poverty with their seminal book, Schooling in Capitalist America. Has anyone actually read this book? Yep, so a few people. Um, they argued that schools simultaneously benefit both the ruling class and the working class in contradictory ways. They put it like this. Since the mid-19th century, the dual objectives of educational reformers, equality of opportunity and social control, have been intermingled. The merger of these two threads sometimes so nearly complete that it becomes imp impossible to distinguish between the two. Schooling has been at once something done for the poor and to the poor. So schools play a particular role in reproducing the next layer of workers. There are many elements involved in this. One component is practical. Um, capitalist exploitation requires that workers have basic literacy and numeracy skills, but the extent to which um, you, le you learn job-specific skills at school is really limited. Mostly you learn on the job. Another practical purpose of education, particularly today when there's a lot more access to it, is as a sorting ground. So standardised testing like um, NAPLAN and in Victoria the VCE truly reveals how schools are overwhelmingly geared towards ranking students to sort them into various courses and institutions. Schools also serve the purpose of preparing youth for economic life, and this idea is not controversial on the left. And I'm going to explain um, this preparation process for economic life in the workforce by briefly looking at the idea of the hidden curriculum and then at the correspondence theory. So as Bowles and Gintas found, the reasons why most um, larger employers supported public education are apparently related to the non-cognitive effects of schooling, what they called the hidden curriculum. And basically the hidden curriculum describes the um, implicit ways in which knowledge and behaviour are constructed outside of the course materials and usual lessons. An important part of um, this is the shaping and selection of personality traits. Um, there's been a number of studies that have been done looking at the um, linking of favourable personality traits and success at school. And these findings um, show quite, interesting, um, quite an interesting trend. Uh, one of these studies uh, looked at the grade point average. So the grade point average is the GPA. It's a number that represents an average of um, a student's grades across their time at school in America. It's an American thing. And the GPA found that traits that were uh, associated with good workers 
were most favoured by the GPA. So getting a good GPA score was closely related to getting um, showing these personality traits. These traits included dependability, perseverance, consistency, willingness to follow orders, punctuality, and my favourite, an ability to delay gratification. And you can see them up here. So they're the traits there. They're positively, they're rewarded by the GPA. The ones that were penalised by the GPA were creativity, aggressiveness, and independence. So you probably don't want aggressive employees. They might turn out to be, you know, militant unionists one day. Um, but this is contrary to, you know, the hidden curriculum denies supposed educational ideals and goals. Because if you listen to dominant educational rhetoric, you'd think that creativity and independence are things that we want our students to be doing. But sinister, they don't actually want that. Um, I'm going to move on to um, the correspondence theory, but I want to look at this thing. I don't know if anyone's seen this before. It's made the rounds on Facebook, and it's these. It's apparently meant to be Bill Gates' um, his 11 rules that you don't get to learn at school. It's not actually Bill Gates who came up with this. People think it is, but it's not. And a lot of my teacher friends post this on Facebook and you know, think that, because um, at the bottom it's been cut off, but it says, um, if you agree, pass it on. If you can read this, thank a teacher. So, But um, some of the, the person who's actually responsible for these 11 rules is a right-wing education author whose um, name is Charles J. Sykes. And he makes the case that schools don't do enough to prepare students for the workplace. Some of his highlights up here include, well, the first one is, life is not fair, get used to it. Um, another highlight, if you think your teacher is tough, wait until you get a boss. And then he's got, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summers off and very few employers are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that in your own time. And right at the bottom it says, be nice to nerds, chances are you'll end up working for one. So that's why it's been accredited to Bill Gates because he's supposedly a nerd and that's why he's so rich. Um, so here, like I said, he's making the argument that schools aren't tough enough on stu students to prepare them for the harsh realities of the workforce. And here you can really see the ruling class idea of what the purpose of schools is actually is. It's clearly spelled out here. Um, sometimes, though, it can be more disguised than these 11 rules. But there's no doubt that schools have historically served the function of behaviour control. This was articulated by a US school committee as early as 1854 when they wrote, the object of education is by no means accomplished by mere intellectual instruction. It has other aims of equal if not higher importance, the character and habits that are to be formed for life. And Horace Mann, the initial picture I showed you, the guy who came up with the phrase the great equaliser, he argued that the citizen of tomorrow will think of duty rather than of the policeman. So he was making the case that schools, rather than instilling obedience, should be promoting self-control from the students. So the goal here is to affect the internalisation of behaviour norms that bosses and managers find desirable in workers. The values and behaviours rewarded and reinforced in schools provide bosses with workers who have what Balls and Ginters refer to as a built-in supervisor. And prevailing ideology around schools tries to hide the class divisions that actually exist under capitalism. The so-called self-directed worker is trained to think that salary, prestige and success at work depend on intellectual capabilities and work ethic 
rather than, um, you know, because rather than actually being born to be rich, being born to rich parents, sorry, because they would argue, after all, we all had an equal chance to get an education, so it's your fault what you make of it. If you don't get, if you don't, if you're not successful, it's your own fault. You wasted time at school, didn't study hard enough, that sort of thing. And part of that self-direction um, is maintained with a reward system, anything from praise to good grades to entrance to better courses. And there's a whole area of psychology as well that's devoted to developing management techniques for both classroom and the workplace which build on this principle. Bowles and Gintas analysed this preparatory role with what they call the correspondence theory. And um, before I try and flesh out what the correspondence theory is, I'm going to look at a quote from Bowles and Gintas about what it is. They say it is the educational system helps integrate youth into the economic system, we believe, through a structural correspondence between its social relations and those of production. The structure of social relations in education not only inures the student to the discipline of the workplace, but develops the types of personal demeanour, modes of self-presentation, self-image and social class identifications, which are the crucial ingredients of job adequacy. Specifically, the social relationships of education, the relationships between administrators and teachers, teachers and students, students and students, and students and their work replicate the hierarchical divisions of labour. So correspondence theory argues that the hierarchical structure in schools are mirrored also in the workplace and also the relationships between people in schools as well mirrored in the workplace. And I'm going to try and provide a few examples of how this is the case. Something as simple as uniform. So at school, you need to wear a school uniform. And I think in the workplace, <coughs> even if you don't have a work uniform, most of us do have to, um, there's some sort of dress code that you have to follow. You can't just wear whatever you want to work. Um, at both work and school, you're kept to a strict regimen. You can't choose your lunchtime. At school, it's all directed by the bell, the timetable. Work is kind of similar as well. You can't um, choose your own toilet breaks. At both situations, you've got limited movement. So you're expected to stay at your own desk or in your own classroom or in your own office, at your own work site. And social interaction is also quite limited because if you're talking to your peers, then that's considered wasting time. There's also a re regime of rewards for hard workers, so things like employee of the month or student of the week. And there's always an incentive because you don't just learn for the benefit of gaining knowledge and you don't just work for the benefit of contributing to society. You work because you need a paycheck, you need money to feed yourself and pay your bills, and you go to school because you need to get those grades to get into that course to eventually get that job. Um, there's a lack of democracy and intellectual control over our studies, much like the lack of control that workers have. Workers um, don't uh, have any control over what they produce, for who and how, and we're alienated from both um, from what we do both at school and at work. Both of these places promote competition as well. Um, in school, you need to compete with your fellow students because you might need to compete for grades or compete for limited um, places in certain areas, limited spots in the accelerated class or limited um, spots in that university degree. It's all about competition and who's going to do better than who and you have to step over each other to do that. Work is a bit like that too. Um, if you're looking for a job, you have to compete to find those jobs, you know, through the job interviews. Um, and once you've got a job, you need to compete for promotions or if you're uh, um, on a contract, 
and you need to compete to stay at that job. And returning back to these 11 rules, these ideas are actually quite entrenched, not just um, with entrenched with teachers as well. Um, and I think there's, and beyond teachers as well, I think students um, can believe these things in broader society. But I think um, the experience of being a teacher under capitalism can lend itself to actually agreeing with this sort of stuff. So when you're teaching so-called nerds and rebels, um, you know, it can, an already stressed out teacher who's just trying to do their job, just trying to teach, can find it quite difficult to deal with a disruptive student. So just like, you know, a waiter who's um, got, just trying to do their job and they've got um, an annoying customer, a disruptive customer. I think it's a bit like that. It's analogous to that. You've got this annoying student, you're trying to teach a class and they keep asking you questions and um, questioning you. And therefore, it can, you can feel more positively towards a nerd, what we call a nerd, um, who's you know just doing all the work and is quiet and whatever you tell them, they just do it. That you can feel more positively towards that. And it's not uncommon to go into a teacher's staff room and hear a lot of teachers talking about those horrible students in their class who ruin their day. You know, that's another added pressure on teachers that can lead them to believe this sort of stuff. But the role of schooling is not just to hide the social divisions, but it's also to reinforce them, to reproduce them. Bowles and Gintis maintain that the primary focus of education is to reproduce inequality. The nature of education that students from different class backgrounds get access to is a key factor in this. And when I talk about the nature of education, I'm not talking about the quality of education because, um, you know, the teachers in private schools, um, they've got the same qualifications, they went to the same institutions, got the same degrees. And um, the body of evidence coming out um, and the Gonski review also shows that teaching standards are not different in private schools when compared with public schools. Um, where in working class schools, though, students are being prepared for their role in the workplace, one of subservience and, you know, ideally for the bosses, one of compliance, elite public school, private schools teach students to rule. So there's a difference in the nature of education you get in that sense. And the difference between the ends to which education is geared for students of different class backgrounds has been identified by various studies and I'm going to look at one such study which is Jean Anion's Social Class and the Hidden Curriculum. Uh, she looked at four different kinds of schools, um, working class, middle class, affluent professional and executive elite. The working class schools she found had an emphasis on obedience and rote learning. The middle class was found to emphasise getting the right answer and following directions. And she concluded possibly preparing these kids for middle class, sorry, for middle management. And affluent schools, by contrast, promoted student-led, creative, independent learning. <coughs> and with the executive elite schools, she found them to be rigorous and inquiry-based, but with more of a sense that there are right and wrong answers. And she concluded that the children here were being prepared to be powerful leaders. And although it's true that more people do have access to um, education than ever before, there is still a section of society that does not get any access to higher education at all. In fact, the representation of low socioeconomic status students in higher education in Australia has remained at about 15% for the last 15 years. And of that 15%, um, there's a division as to which um, tertiary um, institutions they go to. So a school like, or an institution like Victoria University, which 
whose most campuses are in the western suburbs, in working class suburbs of Melbourne, used to be a technical school. That Its enrolment is 25% from low SES. And if you compare it to this elite sandstone university, Melbourne University, there's only have 7% from low socioeconomic status. And if you come here, you, that wouldn't be a surprise to you. Um, now I'm going to move on to what education is actually like under capitalism. It's a well-known cliche that schools kill creativity. So I'm going to look at some concrete examples. I'm going to start with a quote from a participant in the student movement of Paris 68. The student says, We are preoccupied with curricula. We cram, we bluff, and we learn more for the sake of the exam than to form our personalities. We are judged on bookish knowledge hastily stopped and that one quickly forgets as soon as the exam is finished. The exam privileges competition, emulation for social success, and reinforces individualistic mental habits. And it's true, our schools are dominated by examinations and tests. Um, at the risk of being a bit Victoria-centric, we've got NAPLAN, although NAPLAN is Australia-wide, but we've also got SACS, which is school-assessed coursework. We've got VC exams. And in between these high-stakes tests, we have topic tests quizzes, etc., etc. It just goes on and on, test after test after test. And this accountability through constant testing in practice, you know, prescribes a pedagogical style in which students are constantly asked to passively regurgitate what they've been taught, which it really is what they've been told. Any practical use of or exploration or interrogation of curriculum content detracts from important time that could be spent on cramming for standardised tests. And again, it's not uncommon to, um, when a student asks a question in a classroom, for the teacher to say, well, that's not going to be on the test, so you don't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. So really um, crushing the inquisitive nature of children. And by the time they're, you know, um, senior, they, they don't ask any questions anymore. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, the logic of individualism that this fosters discourages learning in a collaborative manner, which all the research shows, not all, but a lot of research shows, that's the best way we learn, when we collaborate, and this is just killing that. Um, on standardised tests, though, I couldn't find any dirt on, you know, any of the writers of standardised tests in Australia, but I did find some dirt on the guy who invented the SATs. Hopefully everyone knows what SATs are. They're the, I think they're the entrance tests into uh, universities in the US. And um, this guy, Carl Brigham, he was an army psychologist and a figurehead of the eugenics movement. <laughs> yep, this is the guy who wrote these tests. And he used data collected in the First World War to argue that American whites were the most intelligent people. And he also found evidence, or made it up, to make the case that immigrants were genetically inferior. So this is the kind of person who writes standardised tests. And you can ask anyone who um, knows anything about NAPLAN, those tests are biased. They are biased in favour of the rich, um, white people, like, it's just totally biased for the people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So Linda Darling-Hammond describes it like this. She says, if we taught babies to talk as most skills are taught in school, they would memorise lists of sounds in a predetermined order and practise them alone in a closet. <laughs> so what can we do as radical educators? I'm guessing, how many, who's a teacher in this room? Yes, so probably half the room are teachers, and we're obviously left-wing teachers because we're at Marxism Conference. What can we do? Um, so I think for teachers to successfully operate outside the dominant teaching model, they need union power to back them up. 
Teacher unions can and should, they don't currently, but they should play a role, not just in defending wages and conditions, but also in the form and curriculum of working class education. We need to strengthen our unions, fight against standardised testing and educate ourselves in radical pedagogy that we can implement in our classrooms. But the fight can't be just limited to the realm of education. Since schools are shaped by the economic system, then we need to target that economic system. Um, Marxist teacher Peter McLaren says, I see the role of teachers as that of transforming the world, not just describing or interpreting it. And education can only be emancipatory if it is connected to a struggle for social change. Marx said the weapon of criticism cannot, of course, replace criticism of the weapon. Material force must be overthrown by material force. So we need education because we need that theory to be able to understand the world in which we live, how it works, who it benefits, and how it has been changed in the past. But that theory is meaningless unless we use it to transform society for the better. So I think radical teachers need to be involved in struggles outside of the classroom, but that isn't to say that in the classroom we just switch off our revolutionary ideals. Where we can, we do point out the contradictions in capitalism to our students. We listen to our students and encourage their inquiry and questioning, not shut it down. And we don't give them a hard time for being out of uniform. But as well, we must also take part in broader struggles. From equal marriage rights, which is something that students are actually um, interested in. I've invited past students to the rallies and marched with them. And um, it, we also need to um, be involved in helping to staff picket lines and out in industrial suburbs and any campaigns in between those. Because it's involvement in these struggles that actually lays the basis for an ultimate fight against the capitalist system itself. And I'm going to um, use another quote from Peter McLaren. He says, critical revolutionary educators seek to realise in their classrooms democratic social values and to believe in their possibilities. Consequently, we argue that they need to go outside of the protected precincts of their classrooms and analyse and explore the workings of capital there as well. To workplaces, to neighbourhoods, to urban zones, to rural communities. And I agree with that sentiment because we have a whole world to win, not just a single classroom. That was Manolia Mustafa, socialist and teacher activist, speaking at the annual Marxism conference discussing education under capitalism. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kanjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.